Acts, uh, page 1656. Page 1657, continuing on to 1657, Revelation chapter 2, starting in verse 12, going to verse 17. Hear now the word of God from Revelation 2, 12 through 17. And to the angel of the church in Pergamos, right? These things, says he, who has the sharp two-edged sword. I know your works, where you dwell, where Satan's throne is. And you hold fast to my name and did not deny my faith, even in the days in which Antipas was my faithful martyr, who was killed among you, where Satan dwells. But... I have a few things against you, because you have there those who hold the doctrine of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the children of Israel, to eat things sacrificed to idols, and to commit sexual immorality. Thus you also have those who hold the doctrine of the Nicolaitans, which thing I hate. Repent, or else I will come to you quickly and will fight against them with the sword of my mouth. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes, I will give some of the hidden manna to eat. And I will give him a white stone, and on the stone a new name written, which no one knows except him who receives it. Beloved people of God, now we come to the second part of this two-part series on this section of Revelation 2, the letter to the church at Pergamum, or Pergamos, in which Christ warns the church that is lax, lackadaisical, lax in discipline, loose in discipline. Now we noted last week that Pergamum uh, the city was capital of the province of Asia, or sometimes we call that area Asia Minor. Of course, today it would be the southwestern part of Turkey. But it was a Roman province. And it was where there was the intertwining, the bringing together, sort of like, sort of like, um, have you ever seen thread uh, sometimes? You know, you, you have all kinds of threads, and they, or, or maybe you have all kinds of, uh, of um, extension cords that get twisted together. You ever done that? Years ago, when we were in Wisconsin, we had helium-filled balloons in a St. Patrick's Day parade. We were coming to the church. We were coming down, and the wind came, and twisted all of those things together and it was really it was quite amazing but anyway but you got the picture here right of things that are intertwined that that sort of that mingle if you will so here we have the intertwining of pagan religion culture science and state 
pagan religion, culture, science, and state. In terms of the state, of course, it was the capital city, but it was also the place, therefore, where there was emperor worship. So it's not just, you know, obey the state, it was you must worship Caesar. You must burn a little incense to Caesar, you see. And there were two, and then later three, temples devoted to emperor worship. But you had other pagan religion as well. Remember last time, children, we talked about the symbol of a serpent. The symbol of a serpent. And uh, we see that in terms of, like, as I mentioned, like, you'll see the, the shield or the, the, the patch for someone who is a, um, a healthcare worker, you know, maybe an EMT or whatever. You see the serpent sort of, sort of intertwined together, the symbol of a serpent. And, of course, we know that the serpent from Genesis chapter 3 is the devil. It's Satan, you say, ultimately. And so the symbol of a serpent in terms of this pagan worship, in that regard then, the promise of healing. The promise of healing. So not only is it pagan worship, but it's intertwined with the idea of these priests were supposedly able to offer healing. The promise of healing. So all that is intertwined here. Science, if you will. And we all want to believe science, right? But we need to recognize that not all science is what we necessarily think of as, as legitimate science. And sometimes, and we see this throughout history, we're seeing it today where science is being used for all kinds of wicked things, but we also see it historically, where science, it again, is, is intermeshed, is intertwined with pagan religion. And that's what we found here. And then also, in terms of culture, great learning, as in the accumulation of a large number of parchments. And the word parchment comes from Pergamum. There was a big library there, and large number of parchments, of like scrolls, that type of thing. Like today, we would say books. Great learning. But of course, learning, again, that largely was in opposition to the fear of God, in opposition to genuine knowledge, had some knowledge there, some wisdom you could find, perhaps, in certain ways. People can observe trees and birds and things like that. But on the other hand, how do you interpret all those things? So great learning, but many of it, of course, much of it, in opposition to the true learning that comes through the fear of the Lord, which is not only the beginning of wisdom, but also the beginning of knowledge. So you have all these things then in this great city, this capital city of Pergamum. The church then faced twin dangers, persecution and seduction. Persecution and seduction. We looked last week at persecution. We'll consider it again in just a moment briefly. Then we're going to look at the seduction, being seduced, being tempted, being persuaded to fall away from the true and the living God. Last week, then, we saw the encouragement that the Lord Jesus brought. He, he first of all, recognizes the danger. I know where you dwell. 
where Satan's throne is. I know. I know what you've been facing. I know what you've gone through. And in the midst of that danger, he pronounces their faithfulness. You hold fast my name. You did not deny my faith. As a matter of fact, that faith he led to martyrdom, including Antipas, and almost certainly other people who were hauled to Pergamum, the capital, for execution. And so the Lord Jesus, first of all, begins by encouraging them. I know. I know where you are. I know your address. And I know what is in that location, because that's where Satan's throne is, and all of the many manifestations. And we talked last week about many manifestations of the throne of Satan today, from uh, academia, schools, to the media, to the government, to false religion, even false, uh, false, ma false manifestations of Christianity. But now having had that encouragement, now we come to the problem. As the Lord Jesus says, verse 14, that I have a few things against you. Now, Pergamum is one of five of these seven churches rebuked by her Lord. The two of them will only be praised by Jesus. But five, five out of the seven will be rebuked by Jesus for their shortcomings. The basic problem here is that there is a blurring of the distinction between the church and the world. There was a blurring. The church was becoming worldly, was compromising, and at the same time, the refusal by the church to exercise discipline against those advocating compromise. And so Jesus comes and says, but I have a few things against you. So, notice what he says here. There are those, verse 14, because you have there those who hold the doctrine of Balaam. Balaam. Oh my. One of the most despicable, hateful, loathsome characters in the Bible. We read in Numbers 22 through 24 his original dealings with the king of Moab, Balak, King Balak. And uh, so Moab was one of those nations uh, that had come from the incestuous relationship between Lot and his, his uh, two daughters after the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah. Moab means from daddy, from father. What a name. That's the kingdom of Moab. This incestuous, this unlawful relationship between Lot and one of his daughters. And so Balak then sent for Balaam, hoping that the false prophet would curse the Israelites for him. As the Israelites were coming into the promised land. We were coming into Canaan. And Balaam, as you remember, kept on protesting when, when Balak would send ambassador would send messengers saying, come and you know do this, I'll give you all kinds of money for this. Balaam kept on protesting that he couldn't say anything against the Israelites without God's permission. That sounds pretty good, doesn't it? But in actuality, we will see he was not really genuine. God finally let Balaam, gave him permission, let Balaam journey to Balak. 
But as we read today, even on the way, he issued a rebuke by means of a talking donkey. Now, children, I'm pretty sure that you've never had a donkey talk back to you. I never have. Isn't that something, though? It's an amazing story that here the donkey talks to the prophet. Because remember what happened is that the, the donkey was saw the angel of the Lord was able to see that. Balaam uh, couldn't see it, but could see the angel of the Lord that had a sword right there. And said, uh, she she uh, banged the, the, uh, the uh, ankle of uh, the prophet into the, uh, uh, into the wall. And at one point she finally came and laid down and he, he said, I would kill you if I had a sword in the hand. And then his eyes were open and he saw, after the donkey talked to him, interestingly, after the donkey rebuked him, then, of course, what happens? But his eyes are open. He sees the angel of the Lord with the sword in his hand that could have killed him. But even at that, he continues on his way. But then, three times, three times, as Balaam looked over the Israelites, he was up on a promontory, and he looked over this great company of the Israelites invading the land. Balak was hoping that Balaam would curse them, but three times he was compelled by the Holy Spirit to bless the people of God and to prophesy good regarding them. Now you say, well, must not be too bad a guy, you know? But you look at Numbers chapter 31, and you see there that Balaam counseled Balak, even though he did not directly curse the Israelites, he counseled Balak that the one way to destroy Israel was to seduce it. To seduce it with false worship, and, of course, with sexual immorality, to seduce it. So he showed his true colors at the end of the day, Numbers chapter 31. Now, why do we tell this story? Because there were those in the church at Pergamum holding to the teaching of Balaam. That is to say, putting, as it says here in verse 14, Putting a stumbling block in the way of God's people. Putting a stumbling block in the way of God's people. Specifically, two things. Number one, to eat things sacrificed to idols. To eat things sacrificed to idols. Now, it was one thing to partake of food at a friend's house if he didn't tell you that meat was sacrificed to idols. But to partake knowingly of such food was to eat and drink in fellowship with demons. As Paul writes in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verses 20 and 21. Rather, that the things which the Gentiles sacrifice, they sacrifice to demons and not to God. And I do not want you to have fellowship with demons. You cannot drink the cup of the Lord, the cup of demons. You cannot partake of the Lord's table and of the table of demons. Israel's ancient enemies tried to ensnare the covenant people of God. And one of the ways was to get them to say, 
well, why don't we just partake? Why don't we just eat things sacrificed to idols? Number two, to commit acts of sexual immorality. Now this was the particular way of trying to be, bring about the downfall of Israel. And of course, this is something which we have seen in subsequent church history. Sex scandals are still a prime way by which Satan tries to ruin the church and its testimony, particularly the leaders. How many times have we heard of ministers of the gospel, faithful ministers, who have been seduced, tempted by the devil? There's a professor at a seminary here who had that experience. He was not destroyed, thankfully. He's back in the ministry now. But all of the ripple effects of that, all the ripple effects, you know, you want to destroy um, uh, you want to destroy an army, you take out the leader. You destroy the church or try to, you take out the leader. And that's, that was what was going on here. So sex scandals are still a prime way by which Satan tries to ruin the church and its testimony. And these wicked advocates of sexual impurity, instead of being accepted, had to be rooted out by means of church discipline. So Balaam, then, Balaam, those holding the teaching of Balaam, but then he goes on in verse 15 to talk about the Nicolaitans. The Nicolaitans. Now, it's difficult to figure out the exact beliefs, the exact doctrine of this group. There seems to be a close connection with Balaam. Uh, early Christian writings hate that they were fostering, engaging in pagan feasts, and committing immorality, sexual immoralities. By the way, we see this in terms, again, in terms of church history. Go, uh, the uh, mainline Presbyterian denomination was coming out with all kinds of strange things, and now, of course, then, of course, it uh, it morphed into from from allowing for fornication for you know, for teenagers to have sex with each other, of course it morphed into what? Into the acceptance of homosexuality that we see today. Well, we see the problem here, do we not? These wicked advocates had to be rooted out. So they, the Nicolaitans then uh, fostered indulging in pagan feasts and committing immoralities, but generically there is the teaching of antinomianism. Anti means against, nomos means law. And so that's the general problem here. It's the, it's the attitude of if it feels good, do it. If it feels good, do it. Well, that's not what the Lord Jesus says, obviously. But that selfish, self-centered, self-indulgent lifestyle if it feels good, do it, knows nothing of the soldierly 
discipline of being a follower of Christ. Be a soldier of Christ. Young people, be a soldier of Jesus. Be a soldier of Christ. Be one who takes up the cross and follows Jesus. Do so from this moment, from an early age. Older person, do it today. Amen. And so this antinomianism, this rejection of the law of God, particularly with regard to sexual matters, as one commentator, Ramsey, put it, certainly the tendency in this sect, this, you could almost say cult, quote, to effect a reasonable compromise, notice that word compromise, to effect a reasonable compromise with the established usages of Greco-Roman society and to retain as many as possible of those usages in the Christian system of life. It's kind of like, you know, you know the old, the old uh, thing about going right to the edge and seeing how far you can go without dropping off the cliff? That's a foolish thing to do, by the way, ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls. That's a foolish thing to do. It's taking a chance. The chances are you're going to slip, you're going to fall. But that's that's what the Nicolaitans basically were doing. They wanted to have a reasonable compromise, a reasonable compromise, but a compromise with the established usages of their society, the Greco-Roman society, and to retain as many as possible of those usages in the Christian system of life. You know why they do that? Why they did that? Because they wanted to appeal to the culture. They wanted to make the church as appealing as possible. And therefore, they were willing to compromise. My friends, we as the church do not offer a bed of roses or a life of ease. We offer blood, sweat, and tears. We offer the discipleship of Jesus. We offer the cross. Jesus said, take up the cross and follow me. Therefore, yet yet you see so many churches today, so many churches who pervert worship, for example, in order to make it appealing to the masses with rock music, with lights, with entertainment, with smoke, with all kinds of things to appeal to people. And they totally pervert the worship of God. Say, well, we believe in Jesus. We believe believe that we can do the worship this way. That's another manifestation of the spirit of the Nicolaitans. Probably the well-to-do, educated classes of professing Christians were in the forefront of this movement. For they would have had the most to lose prestige as well as money prestige as well as money. If you don't have much, then there's not much to lose, right? If you're a millionaire, you've got a lot to lose. When persecution comes in a society, comes to the church, those that are the rich many times will try desperately to find a way to accommodate. But of course they had already suffered persecution, had they not? That's what Jesus said. I Look, you were faithful. 
but having suffered persecution, there are those who feel enough is enough, that maybe there is a way of following Christ without such an expensive price to pay. Now the significance of Nicolaitanism is this, first of all, an easygoing Christianity would have been wiped out. We're seeing this with the mainline Protestant denominations today. They're ending, they're ending up with buildings and no people. It's literally, I was just reading yesterday about this. United Methodists out in the West Coast and so forth. they got nice buildings. And they can sell those buildings. They can pay the bureaucrats for a while. They have no people, basically. And ultimately then, as we have seen throughout church history, an easygoing, compromised Christianity would have been wiped out because ultimately, why bother following Christ at all if you're not going to follow him with all that you have? Furthermore, one compromise would have led to another. One compromise would have led to another. The rationalization of eating forbidden fruit would have led to rationalizing the burning of incense. And so again, we see this in our society today. One thing leads to another, leads to another. Christianity would thus have been subjugated to pagan religion. So that's the problem. That's the problem. Well, now we come thirdly to the warning and the promise. Jesus says, repent. Repent, therefore. Verse 16, repent. This command to repent is directed to the church for its neglecting to discipline these heretics. The sin in particular view here is laxness of discipline, not exercising discipline not being willing to discipline people who were compromised with the world. Repent, the Lord Jesus says, or else I am coming to you quickly. Christ would come in this regard judgment, and it would be swiftly. Just as like with the, the church at Ephesus, threat of the candlestick being removed. Notice what Jesus says, and I will make war against them by the sword of my mouth. The sword, that sharp and two-edged sword, which comes from the mouth of Christ. That sword, he speaks and it is done. His word is effectual. The word of God is alive and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the dividing asunder of soul and spirit, of joints and marrow, and as a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart, Jesus knows their address, but he knows their hearts as well. And I will make war against them. Because these so-called Christians, these professing Christians, were not genuine. They were fake, and they were his enemies. But he warns them, he who has an ear, let him hear. But at the same time, he also offers the promise to the one who overcomes. To the one who overcomes. The overcomers, we might say. That's a theme, that, that we see that. That's a phrase that keeps on appearing in these seven letters to these churches. Here it is a reference to those who 
persevere in being faithful to Christ and who therefore reject these false teachings. To that person, the one who overcomes, who is victorious, to him I will give of the hidden manna. Now we sang a few moments ago about manna, M-A-N-N-A, from Psalm 78. Manna was the Israelites' sustenance in the wilderness. They needed that bread rained down from heaven in order to live. You know how many days a week would come down? Six. And of course the Sabbath, they were supposed to gather enough on the sixth day, because on the Sabbath they were supposed to rest, and there was no manna there. It's kind of interesting when they tried to hoard it, hoard it up, it would... Uh, you know, it, it would uh, it would not keep. So it's kind of interesting, isn't it? Now, having said that, though, an omerful, that is to say about quarts, an omerful, an omer is about two quarts that was preserved and hidden in the Ark of the Covenant. And so it was their, literally, their daily bread. It was their sustenance in the wilderness. Now, the spiritual significance is that the hidden manna, the hidden manna always reminded the people that it was God who provided for them. It was God who provided for them. And today, Christ, who has passed out of our sight into the heavenlies, is the bread of life on whom we feed. John 6, I am the bread of life, Jesus says. For you see, Christ is our life. And we are enabled to go into the Holy of Holies to the Ark of the Covenant through the blood of Jesus. So Jesus says to him, I will give of the hidden manna, and furthermore, I will give him a white stone and a new name written on the stone, which no one knows except him who receives it. Now, the question here about this white stone, there are various proposals, various ideas as to what exactly that meant. Was it perhaps a ticket, sort of like a ticket, that would admit to the feast of the great king? Or was it maybe, you know how you used to judge people? Like there was a trial, and they would pass around a a little um, bag, and if you found the person guilty, you would put a black stone in there, black pebble. If you found the person not guilty, you put a white one. So is it perhaps the pebble of acquittal used in judicial cases? Or is it perhaps representative of the person who receives it? It seems to me that this stone must refer to moral purity. The, the idea of white points to righteousness And note also the parallelism here, that those who don't feast with the pagans will feed on heavenly bread. Those who shun sexual immorality will have the Lord's righteousness. And so I'll give him a white stone, but more than that, I'll give him a new name. Now you remember Caesar Augustus claimed to be the one who bring in a new era of peace. And he had a new name. But 
Christians would be elevated above this Caesar by means of a true new name. What is this new name? It's either the believer's new name in Christ or Christ's new name as mediator. The point is that this name is such that only those who have been born again can know it. In a moment, we're going to sing from Psalm 25. And in Psalm 25, in Psalm 25 and verse 14, we read these words, Psalm 25, verse 14. The secret of the Lord is with those who fear him, and he will show them his covenant. And here we find a similar theme. It's a new name written which no one knows except him who receives it. I have two points of application. The first is this. You must make sure that you do not compromise with the world. Children, you must make sure that you do not compromise with the world. There are so many temptations to go along with the crowd. For example, liber what's called liberation theology believing that this worldly concerns are what is what's important, rather than our reconciliation with God in Christ. That's a perversion of the Christian message. Sexual immorality and impurity. Sexual immorality and impurity. That would be another idea of compromising with the world. And also denying the exclusive nature of the gospel. And the idea that Jesus is the only way to God. I am the way, the truth, and the life, Jesus says. No one comes to the Father but by me. And so don't compromise children, young people, older people. Do not go along with the world. Number two, though, you need to make sure that you are feasting on the one who is the true manna out of heaven. Jesus is the bread of life. He is the one who feeds us spiritually. But my question to you today, then, is are you feasting on him? Jesus says, repent. Or else I will come to you quickly and will fight against them with the sword of my mouth. But he promises to him who overcomes, I will give some of the hidden manna to eat and a white stone. And on that stone a new name written which no one knows except him who receives it. The blessing of the covenant of the Lord. Amen. We please stand for prayer? This word would be applied by thy Holy Spirit to everyone who has heard this message. So, Father, be pleased to take it by thy Spirit and apply it to each one. Lord, thou art the one who searches the hearts. So do a great work this day. And we'll thank thee for it. In the name of him who is the bread of life, even Jesus the Christ. Amen. Amen.